Hello, hello. Welcome to the show. I'm Joy Dooling, and you are listening to the Joy of Membership podcast. This podcast is for membership leaders. So we talk about strategies for attracting, engaging, and retaining members. But that's not entirely the focus of the show, because let's be honest here, there is no shortage of advice out there on best practices in membership. What we need to talk about is how to actually make those things possible in the real world, how to be absolutely sure that growth practices are going to stick, how to make those things easier, more consistent, and even automatic in some cases. Sound good? Then stick around because we're about to jump into it. Hey there, Joy here, host of the Joy of Membership podcast. Welcome to this week's episode. Before we jump in, I wanted to make sure that you know that I do a free live training most Thursdays at noon central. It's called the Care Points Difference. In this training, I share what care points are, why they matter, and how to construct them so that what you're doing becomes more naturally attractive to those you serve. And equally important, there are ways to set up those care points so that your membership becomes easier to run, which is critically important if you're running your organization with a lean team or with mostly volunteers. Providing a great member experience can seem like this thing that just automatically happens because you're of course committed to doing the right things for your members, but people get busy, balls get dropped, committee chairs change, and sometimes the right things simply don't get done. Intentionally designing care points changes that, and the effect is magical. Your members will feel the difference, and you'll love the result. Faster joins, more enthusiastic engagement, and renewals that happen without hesitation. If you'd like to join me for the next training, you'll find the details and a sign-up form at joyofmembership.com slash carepoints. I'd love to see you there. And now, with no further ado, let's get on with this week's show. thought about the role that humor might play in your organization's culture, perhaps in how you relate to members of your team or how you approach member services? Combining eight years of comedy with six years of public speaking, David Horning is on a mission to help teams transform their cultures to better adapt to a changing world. David believes that humor is a great tool to relieve stress, challenge traditional leadership models, and have fun doing it. In 2019, he founded Water Cooler Comedy, a company offering corporate comedy shows, keynote presentations, training programs, leadership consulting, and more. He has appeared in comedy festivals and at comedy clubs all across the country. Plus, he hosts You Can't Laugh at That, a podcast about why it's okay to laugh at, well, anything. Hey, David, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could be with me here today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. This is great. 
So let's start by sharing who you are and who you help. Yes. Well, my name is David Horning. I am a speaker. I am a consultant and I am a comedian. I help leaders step outside of the status quo and uh, shift their narrative of what it means to lead using the skills of a stand-up comedian, which in a lot of cases, you don't think comedy and work go together, but really there are a lot of built-in psychological skills that a comic uses to connect with an audience, to connect ideas together, to listen to feedback, and the list goes on and on. And these are all skills that if leaders uh, were to adopt them, uh, not only could they make work more fun, but uh, they could make it more rewarding, not only for themselves and for the people around them. So that's the uphill battle that I chose to climb. <laughs> well, I love that comedy angle, which is just one of the reasons that attracted me to having this conversation with you today. Because I mean, first of all, I've been working with associations and trade groups for about 16 years now. And many of them have been doing things sort of the same way for decades. And it's mm -hmm. really easy to get stuck in that. This is our tradition. This is the way we've always done things. And you have some ideas around how to break out of that sort of thinking. So could you just give us your thoughts about why organizations get stuck in the status quo and why they might be uncomfortable challenging that. Joy, the status quo is easy. It's the way we've always done things. We don't have to put any extra effort, any extra thought into keeping things the way they are. And if they aren't going poorly, then why would we want to change? And uh, that's quite a toxic way of looking at things, especially now when the status quo has been so massively disrupted for so many people. And, and that's why this topic really resonates with more and more audiences today. And so just be willing to step outside of your comfort zone a little bit. Just trying new little things. Don't try to get too drastic and say, we're changing everything. That's overwhelming. That creates stress. It, it creates a lot of unnecessary work, a lot of backtracking if you commit too hard too quickly. It's really important to ease into a situation. When I get on stage, I like to get a feel for the audience before I go into the meat of my material. I want to see how they respond to my first few lines, my first few jokes, my first few stories. If they're on board, then I can commit further. Uh, and if they're not on board, then I have to recalibrate and figure out where they are. So a lot of that has to do with listening to your people while also being cognizant of the world around you. And I use this quote in my presentations by Jack Welch. And that is, if the world on the outside is changing faster than the world on the inside, then the end is near. And we have to be able to adapt to those. And I'm paraphrasing the quote uh, I don't, <laughs> off the top of my head, but it, that's the whole thing is it's little changes, little gradual changes. Things don't happen all at once as we're watching political climate change. It's not like it was all of a sudden here. Now the way this is the way things are. If you really look back, things have been gestating for 10, 15, 20 or more years. And it's little changes at a time that can create a big impact long term. So don't overwhelm yourself. It's number one, especially using humor. One of the best outcomes of using humor is reducing stress. And if you say, well, I want to incorporate humor into the way we do things, we're going to change everything and do that. That's only going to create more stress and you're fighting an even steeper uphill battle. Well, you took me right into the next question that I was going to ask, which is why humor? I mean, there are lots mm -hmm. of ways to kind of tackle this challenge of organizations being stuck in the status quo. 
I mean, obviously you're a comedian, so you're going to be, <laughs> you're going to be attracted to the idea of using humor, but why do you think that's an effective foot in the door? Sure. I'm a nerd when it comes to human behavior. I love to dive into the topic of why do people act the way they do? Why do we behave the way they, that we do? And what humor does is it interrupts our patterns. So our brains, we, we think in patterns, right? If this, then this, and we build that base up, we build those hypotheses off of our, our previous experiences in life. What humor does is it disrupts that pattern while also introducing new possibilities. So if so, when we get a joke, it's our brain's way of saying, oh, I haven't looked at it that way before. So you're instantly looking at things from a different perspective, whether you realize it in the moment consciously or not. And so it allows for new possibilities. And when we're more resistant to change, if we can get a laugh or if we can make a connection with another person in a way where they're looking at the situation in a way that they haven't before, it allows them to consider new possibilities rather than trying to force it down people's throats. And so humor, it's the cheese around the pill that we need to swallow sometimes that, uh, that makes it more palatable and Again, the idea that it presents new possibilities is is huge. So, I mean, humor doesn't necessarily always end up with a laugh. It's a, that's a pretty frequent outcome. And so I always make sure to dispel what humor is because people tend to consider it as like comedy or jokes or being funny all the time. And that's not necessarily always true. Humor is more of an internal working out process where we have cognitive dissonance. So let's say there is a political candidate we support. And we also have this, this belief that we've lived by our whole life. Well, that political candidate, when they defy that belief, we try to find out ways like to do those mental gymnastics where we justify the reason that they defied our belief so that we can still believe in that political candidate and still hold the belief at the same time. Now, what humor does is it makes it okay for those things not to connect. It creates a new connection. So instead of going, if A, then B, now it's if A, then M, then Q, then U, then B, you know, (laughs) so it introduces new possibilities there. And maybe B isn't the outcome we were even looking for. Maybe we were trying to get to C or D the whole time. And humor presents these new possibilities in that way. So for people like me who don't consider ourselves to really be funny. The idea of bringing humor into the workplace, I mean, light humor, I suppose I could pull off, but I don't consider myself to be a a naturally funny person. Can you give us a couple of kind of real world examples of what humor would look like in the workplace? Yeah. And that's the thing is you don't have to be a comedian to really use humor in the workplace. It's leaning on the people who do. So there are organizations where the leaders maybe try to be funny and it doesn't work. And so they lean on their people who are already funny, like bringing the humor into the office already. I do some work with a leadership and development company and they outsource trainers and speakers and things like that. And their culture and their workplace is very open to using humor. So everybody there has a sense of humor and having a sense of humor means you appreciate humor. You appreciate when people point out the absurd and silly things and you can share a laugh together, whether you're the one that's contributing that humor or not, it isn't relevant. And what they are very open about just just laughing together. And so just being open to laughing together about the, the little things that happen 
every day. And it's important to to separate laughing at somebody and laughing with somebody because we all make mistakes and it's important to be able to laugh about those things. So vulnerability is another part of using humor uh, without even, you know, being funny. Oh, go ahead. I was just like, I absolutely love the distinction between feeling pressured that you have to be funny yourself versus infusing your workplace with appreciation of humor and bringing that humor into the workplace. I I like that distinction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's and it's vital, too, because if you're not a funny person, you're trying to be funny. Number one, it's going to come across as as not genuine to the people around you. So it's going to have that inverse effect. And and number two, you're going to start stressing yourself out thinking, well, why am I not funny? It's, it's OK. I mean, that's a muscle you can develop. But if it's not your strong suit, developing an appreciation for it. And it's really about being open to thinking outside of the box, being open to new possibilities. If you're a more analytical person and someone comes forward with a more outside of the box idea, we have a tendency to try to to resist that idea at first. But what humor allows us to do is ask the question, well, what else could be true here? What else could be behind this idea? How could this idea work rather than yes or no? So humor explores that nuance, that that gray that is existence. Life isn't black or white. Humor uh, explores that area in between. Well, and I would really think that being the kind of organization that has an appreciation for humor would be a member attractive quality in many cases. I mean, while I can't tell a joke to save my life, <laughs> I'd love to be in a group that is engaging and full of humor and good naturedness. So oh, yeah, yeah I, I would think that would be a very member attractive quality in many cases. Yeah. And employees want their bosses to have a sense of humor. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're joking all the time, but it does mean that if you're an employee and you have an outside of the box idea, if your boss has a sense of humor, if your boss is willing to laugh at their own mistakes when they do occur, you're feeling less pressured. You're feeling less stressed to come forward with that idea. There's that sense of comfort around one another where I'm not walking on eggshells all day long. Because when you're in that mindset, I've worked with so many bosses where I was like scared to come forward with an idea or or even nervous to talk to them. And that's not the kind of relationship we want to create. That's that very old authoritarian kind of mentality that has no place in today's workplace if we want people to be engaged. So if you're in a leadership position, using humor doesn't necessarily mean you're funny all the time. It means you're approachable and human and on the same level as everyone else, even though your job title might be different. And that's an important distinction to make too. So you touched on this just very briefly a couple moments ago about uh, one of the pitfalls being to make sure that you know, humor isn't laughing at people. Can you talk a little bit more about the pitfalls that you might have to look out for as you're trying to bring humor into the workplace? Yeah, sure. Humor shouldn't be a distraction. Humor should be always a tool to get from where you are to where you want to go. If we're using humor, so being able to laugh at yourself, for example, it's important. We all make mistakes. All of us are human. We're our, none of us are perfect. We're always working with just not enough information to get from where we are to where we want to go. And life is just the, a continued series of trying to figure out each piece of that puzzle along the way. And so we're going to fall on our faces. But if we're just so self-deprecating that other people are feeling bad for us and, and we're distracting from actually solving the problem, that can really uh, demotivate people. It can really uh, bring the temperature of the room down. We don't want to isolate other people. If you wouldn't say it with them in the room and they wouldn't 
laugh, either laugh along with you or feel better because you said it, probably don't say that. You can keep it to yourself. You, know, you can laugh to yourself if somebody does something silly. We all do stupid things. And when we do laugh at it, though, that's our brain's way of seeing ourselves in that person. Because every story that I tell in my presentations is about how I've fallen on my face. Because that connects with people. Everybody's done that. Everybody's doubled down on it. And everybody's, you know, been able to look back. Not everybody, but in a lot of cases, it's important to be able to look back and laugh. And that's what I do is I look back and laugh because I see it as an important step in learning how to do things better. And so instead of focusing on what, how not to use humor, the, I, I try to shift the focus on the best ways to use humor and it's to uplift. It's to break the tension without building tension. It's to break down those barriers and not build up barriers. Because when we laugh together, that's a very human experience. It builds trust. It builds a, a shared experience, a shared story together. And I mean, think about the people that you work with that are funny, but also work hard. Those are the people that you want to be around. Those are the people that when you're having a bad day, you go to their desk and you have a conversation, you leave feeling a little bit better. The goal of using humor in the workplace, one of the most important goals is you want to uplift those people. So even just asking that question, is this going to make their day better? That little self-assessment. If you pause, if you have to think about, will it? You can couch that. You can save that for later. Work it out if you think what you're going to say is really funny. And that's what a comic does too. A comic is just a professional at finding ways to poke holes in darker topics. But the goal is to have people leave that experience feeling better than they did when they got there. It might not always happen, but if you can get 95% of the audience on board with an idea, you're good. You've done it. That's successful. Well, what an interesting topic to just explore and think about as we try to bring change to our workplaces and change to our membership organizations. Thank you for sharing all of this. If an organization is interested in maybe diving more into this topic, do you have some resources or some suggestions around where they should start? Of course. I mean, you can always check me out on my website, watercoolercomedy.org. Uh, there's links to videos. There's links to my podcast. You can't laugh at that, which is NSFW, by the way. So make sure you have your headphones in when you're listening to that, because we do bring in professional comics and we talk about some of these touchy topics and what makes them funny. You can also follow my blog at davidhorning.wordpress.com. And you can find me on social media, Twitter at the David Horning. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. And I think that's enough plugs. I can sit here all day. You can read this post and do this and do that. And now you have homework. We'll get links to all of those things that you've mentioned uh, in the show notes. So um, if people want to learn more about what you do and dive deeper into this topic, they can absolutely look for all those links there. Thank you, David, so much for being here and sharing a few minutes around your expertise and your comedy. And just really appreciate you being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to share this information with as many people as I can. Joy here, back with a few thoughts about this week's episode. My conversation with David got me thinking about change and why it's so difficult for people and organizations to do. I believe change is challenging for several reasons. First, 
Habits are strong and pervasive. The average person has far more habits than they realize. Each morning, you likely wake up and you follow the same routine. You take the same path to work. You think largely the same thoughts as you did the day before. Much of your day and night is a repeat of all of the days that came before. When you feel bored, you soothe yourself in the same two to three ways each time. You only eat a few foods regularly. You likely talk to the same people. Habits avoid thinking. They're done automatically. Anything that minimizes thinking seems to be your brain's preference. The fewer decisions, the better. To change, you must be certain that change is in your best interest. Otherwise, habits always win. Second, change is hard because it's uncomfortable. You probably already know how to lose 25 pounds or how to find a better job, but the thought of taking the actions necessary to accomplish those goals creates discomfort. Our members are uncomfortable, even though they join wanting something to be different, they are uncomfortable. And that makes it likely that their habits and life is going to get in the way of what they really want. Third, what you're doing is already working. Well, sort of working. Your brain is preoccupied with your survival. I am fascinated by the way the human brain works. Our brains actually are programmed to resist change because what you're doing right now is allowing you to live and any change could potentially lead to disaster. You might be unhappy today, but you're still alive, which your brain interprets as being successful. Fourth, you've likely tried to change in the past and failed. If you've tried to change several times and failed, part of you says, obviously, I can't change. What's the use in trying? Smaller changes are easier to accomplish and to maintain. So as we think about how difficult change is for all of us as individuals, is it any surprise that it's hard for board members and committee members and just regular members to create change? If you are intent on moving your organization forward and creating change in your member experience, there are a few things that you can do that might help. First of all, be prepared and expect that change will be challenging. Your odds of success improve if you're prepared. Have a plan. Help members create a vision for what they want and a plan to get there. Start small. To minimize the discomfort that change creates, maybe change just a little each week or each month. What can board members or committee members or members do that moves them in small ways toward their goal? Be patient. Strategically sprinkling in quick wins wherever you can can really help to keep things motivating. Prepare for consequences. Sometimes creating change is like 
playing the whack-a-mole game at a carnival. Did you ever play that where you would take the big hammer and you would like push down the mole that popped up from the game? And then as soon as you did that, one would pop up from another hole. It was a fun game. I really used to like it. But, you know, every time you bop one challenge down and another one would pop up in a different place, that's what made the game exciting. But when we're talking about the real world, that's what makes change really challenging. Accept that this is going to happen and know that it doesn't mean that the original change wasn't worth doing. Helping members plan for and work toward incremental change is the key to long-term success and will ultimately create raving fans about the transformational experience that they've achieved by becoming involved with your organization. This is universally true no matter what your area of focus may be. If topics like this intrigue you, Journey Care will too. One of the primary reasons why I developed the Journey Care software platform is because I wanted to make it easy to make change happen in your member experience. I wanted it to be as simple as if we know X about someone, then do A, B, and C. But if we know Y about someone, then do D and E and F instead. In a nutshell, we're using the tools inside Journey Gears to automatically do what you'd probably love to do on a one-on-one basis with every single member you serve. The effect is simply magical. If you'd like to see a tour of what Journey Care can do, you'll find a recorded version on the website, and you can get there easily by going to joyofmembership.com software. That's a wrap on this week's episode. I hope you found the conversation with David to be really thought-provoking. I will be back here next week with another great interview. In the meantime, enjoy your week and take care. Hey there, you made it all the way to the end. Bravo to you. I'm back in just one last time to remind you that there's a free one-page PDF available over at the website that shows you more than 20 ways that technology could be supporting your efforts to attract, engage, and retain more members. It's actually broken down into the stages of the member journey, so you'll know exactly where each piece fits. And everything that's on that one-pager can actually be automatically done for you with software that costs less than $1,000 per year. So if you haven't already grabbed it, you can get your copy at joyofmembership.com slash tech. joyofmembership.com slash tech, T-E-C-H. Have a great week and I'll see you next time.